Second Corinthians, we're in chapter 2 this night. And uh, just by way of reminder, Paul, in writing this book of Second Corinthians, spends a lot of time defending himself as an apostle because of the uh, input that he had gotten from uh, Timothy and Titus when he sent the first letter. Uh, and the uh, first letter that was really a response to a letter they had sent him and he had to declare to the Corinthian church that he had the authority of an apostle. And some of them were questioning that authority. And that's still the case, uh, which is partly the reason for his writing this second letter. Um, but the majority of complaints that came that resulted in his writing this letter had to do with the fact that he had promised them that he was going to go to be with them and maybe spend the winter with them. But he appended that intention with, if the Lord wills. Well, because he didn't show up, there were those in Corinth who thought that he wasn't trustworthy. And if you can't trust his word, how can you trust what he says about you know, his apostleship and the things that he is proclaiming as doctrinal? And so there was a lot of uh, animosity against Paul as a result of his having... Well, given them a really, really severe rebuke in that first letter. There were so many things that they were doing wrong. But he did it in love. And he wanted to make sure that they realized that. And so he spends a lot of time in this letter to talk about the fact that he does indeed love them as he did all the churches and wants the very best for them and wants them to know that Whatever he had shared with them was from the Lord. And uh, whether or not they really, all of them, decided to agree with these things later, we're not really told. I wish there would have been a third letter to Corinth, but there wasn't. But the fact remains, Paul had to deal with a lot of issues. And in this letter, much of that has been already dealt with, but he actually spends some time in this initial part of the letter to talk about a rather exciting thing that took place as a result of his having written against the sins that were being allowed in Corinth. And one of those is discussed here in chapter 2 and will be later discussed as well uh, in a, a further chapter as we get into the study. Uh, probably not tonight, but uh, later on in the study of the book. But here in chapter 2, Paul is continuing to talk about the fact that uh, there were issues, and one of those issues is the focus of uh, this portion of chapter 2 where we begin. Chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those things from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love of of which I have so abundantly for you. So Paul here is starting to talk about 
a particular issue, actually two issues. One issue was that he did not come to them, and he's going to be explaining again why uh, he did not come. Um, and though it might have caused a great deal of sorrow on the part of the Corinthians, he was sorrowful that that happened to be the case, but he wants them to be reminded that uh, every one of us faces times of difficulty. Every one of us faces challenges that are unexpected. And as a result, our plans can be changed. And it brings sorrow to the heart of those who were expecting, in this case, Paul to come. But it was sorrowful for him also that he wasn't able to come. And yet he's reflecting on that and realizes as well that it was probably a good thing that he did not come to them when he had intended. Um, and part of the reason for that is explained to, by him as we move forward. But he also start, starts to talk here about um, an offense that was brought to his attention. And he says, I wrote this very thing to you, verse 3 again, lest when I come I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you that my joy is a joy of you all. He said that there was a point where he expected them to do something, but he wasn't sure that they were actually going to do that. And he found out that they did indeed respond in the way that he had asked them to. Now, in this section, there is a bit of dispute among scholars as to what Paul is referring to when he says, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those uh, from whom I ought to have joy, in verse 3. When did he write? Was he referring to what we now know as 1 Corinthians? Or was he referring to a letter that must have been or might have been written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians and that's where the issue comes in there are those who believe that there was another letter that is missing we do not have a record of but they argue in that um, assumption that perhaps the last three chapters of 2nd Corinthians was that lost letter chapters 10, 11, and 12 seem to deviate somewhat from the main thrust of Paul's letter here in 2 Corinthians. And so these scholars argue that that missing letter was actually included in this letter at the end. There's no biblical or extra-biblical proof of that. None of the early church fathers ever mentioned an, an, another letter. Uh, none of the other church fathers had that opinion but the opinion that they all did have is that the reference that Paul is making here in chapter 2, which we'll be getting into here shortly, was in reference to the sin that had been referred to by Paul in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians, or chapter 5, rather, of 1 Corinthians, where a man had taken his father's wife and it was being allowed. It was not being... Uh, dealt with properly. And Paul addressed that in that first letter in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, as you'll recall. So that's, I believe, what Paul is referring to here when he's talking about having written to them. Uh, but he says in verse 5, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. 
This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now, in this particular section that we just read, the implication is that there was an individual who was punished by the church. The majority of the church saw it to be sufficient uh, to address this particular issue. And that's why we believe that it is the issue of this young man who had taken his father's wife uh, in a sexual relationship. They apparently did respond to Paul's rebuke and they dealt with this man. And there must have been apparently, word had gotten to him, that this man has repented. And this man has, although he was excommunicated from the church, as Paul indicated they must do, he wanted to come back into the fellowship. He is repentant, as far as they can tell. And in that repentant state, they want to be led by the Spirit of God in accepting him back into the fellowship. So this portion of Scripture really is dealing with forgiveness. It is dealing with repentance. It is dealing with church discipline. It is dealing with what do we do and how far do we take this? How do I know that his repentance is true repentance? Although Paul isn't going to address that question in this portion of the letter, he does address it later on. But here in this portion of Scripture, we're seeing that Paul is uh, commending them for having taken the right action. They punished this one. He was inflicted by the majority. Uh, and because of that infliction of punishment, the man apparently has repented, turned from his sin. And he says in verse 9, For to this end I also write that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now comes the important portion of this portion of the letter. He says in verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that there is a need for the church to come to that place where they are willing to take that step that he's recommending here. Forgiveness, after having extended a, 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 some degree of disciplinary action, is very, very important. In the church, we have, from time to time, the need to discipline individuals. It's never a very comfortable thing to do. As a pastor, I can assure you that it is not pleasant. And when it is necessary, it is only for the purpose of making sure that the individual recognizes that it is a sin that cannot be allowed to continue in order to have fellowship with the rest of the body of Christ. That individual must repent from that sin, turn from it, and obviously confess it to the Lord, and then seek retribution, seek the opportunity to come back into fellowship. Our purpose in discipline is always for that end, to restore that one into the fellowship. Nobody wants to lose 
a friend. Nobody wants to confront uh, someone who is living in sin because it's painful. It is very, very hard. I can tell you one time when I did have to do that. And it was a very, very sad confrontation. Neither one of us were happy about this. The individual ended up leaving the church for a while. And after I had that meeting with him, I went outside just praying to the Lord, asking God to help in this situation. And as I was doing that, this man's brother and the man's brother's daughter were approaching the church. She was about seven years old or maybe eight years old. She looked up at me and with such compassion, she said, Pastor Norm, it's not very easy to be a pastor, is it? I don't understand how she knew that I was deeply troubled, but she must have seen it in my face and she must have known the purpose that I had to deal with such a terrible issue that caused me a great deal of grief. But that was comforting to me to know that another member of the body, in this case a seven or eight year old beautiful little girl, uh, was compassionate and felt the pain that I was feeling and expressed it in such a wonderful way that encouraged me. Well, that individual that I had had to deal with two or three years later came up to me at a men's meeting and he took me aside and said, Pastor Norm, I just want you to know you were right. And I did repent of what you had committed, uh, uh, you know, accused me of because it was true. And I've been a changed man since then. He came back to the church. Not our church. He went elsewhere. That's not a problem. But he came back into fellowship. And that was so very, very important. And he's a faithful Christian to this day. So, what do we do? How do we deal with it? It's not easy. First of all, you make sure that it's not just a rumor being spread by people who have some kind of a vindictive attitude towards an individual. You can't just assume that what somebody says about some other person is correct. So we go to Matthew chapter 18 from what Jesus gives us with regard to discipline as a basic foundational procedure that should be followed. He tells us there that if anyone offends you in the church, you take that person aside and you talk to him about that offense. And then, if he refuses to change, even having been willing to admit the sin, then you go to a few of the uh, other church members and bring them with you, and between you and those two or three witnesses, confront the man or woman again. And if he still refuses, then you deal with it in the way that uh, is necessary. You excommunicate him. You take him out of the fellowship. And that is for the purpose, again, of hopefully restoring that one as a brother. That's precisely what Paul intended with this individual in Corinth. And he apparently has repented, and the church now needs to make a decision. They need to decide whether or not they will accept him back into fellowship. And Paul is encouraging them to do so. And he says, if you forgive anything, I also forgive. 
Remember, he was pretty harsh when he told them, take care of that situation. Take that one and just let him be turned over to Satan for the destruction of his body. Pretty harsh words. But Paul now is saying, let's forgive him. And if you do, I do. And there is no reason for anyone to not forgive when the situation justifies it. So many times, many times in the church, the body of Christ has been terribly um, hurt by unforgiveness, terribly hurt by the sins of even leadership. And it's never, ever a pleasant thing. It's always divisive. It's always hard. It seems almost cruel sometimes with the way that we treat each other. But forgiveness is important. And if you don't think so, I, I know you don't not think so, but just remind yourselves, I remind myself often, that one of the things that the Lord said in the Lord's Prayer was that we should ask the Lord to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, or forgive those who transgress against us. You know, that's important. He went on to say, after having given that model prayer to his disciples to say that if you aren't willing to forgive your brother and sister then how can you expect your father to forgive you so it's, forgiveness is so very very important and and Paul gives the reason for that as well as a couple of other things that we'll look at as well in verse 11 where he says lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices we shouldn't be, and I hope we aren't, ignorant of Satan's devices. First of all, we know him to be the accuser of the brethren. The writer of uh, John's uh, letters, John the Apostle, talked about the fact that, that he is indeed an accuser of the brethren. He also, according to Jesus, is a tempter. He's a liar. He's a destroyer, a murderer. He's all of these things. But he has schemes that he takes advantage of whenever he has the opportunity. One of the things that he can take advantage of with individuals is tempting those individuals into sin. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. It's, everybody does that. You don't have to be concerned about it being a sin. It's, it's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. Go ahead and check it out. It's right there for you, before you. Take advantage of it. Satan tempts. Satan leads us into sin. And that's a scheme that he uses among us. And when we fall into that trap and we enter into that sin, and then he continues with another method of his in condemning you for your having sinned. Oh, look at you, you sinner. God's never going to forgive you. You've gone too far. Oh, you are a terrible person. You're not worthy of God's forgiveness. You're not worthy to be a part of the family of God. You have ruined your life. Satan does those sorts of things. And he does it with great success. Also, what Paul, I think, is referring to here, where Satan can take advantage of us, is if we are not willing to take that step of restoring a brother or sister into the fellowship. That causes division also. And he loves to divide. He loves to cause contentions, strife. And he loves to divide his enemies, you and I, the church. He does it through that kind of situation 
where some say yes and some say no. And now all of a sudden we've got a fight on our hands. It should never be. We should be in agreement with the Word of God. And you know what? That's what confess means. When we confess to God, we're basically saying we agree with God in this matter. The other issue, I guess, if you consider this, is that uh, if we are willing to let this individual back into the fellowship, what if it isn't true repentance? What then? Now we've got another issue. We've made a mistake. And Satan can barrage us with all kinds of guilty feelings in that respect as well. So we do have to recognize that Satan is wanting to take advantage of us. So we have to be very, very careful in our disciplinary actions with others and in how we respond to that person's turning from those sins or not. And remind ourselves that there by the grace of God go I. We shouldn't condemn our brothers and sisters. We should tell them when they are sinning. We should confront them. That is the right thing to do. It's not that we judge them in terms of uh, deciding their eternal fate, but we are to be fruit inspectors. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here in this portion. They were doing the right thing in telling this man that he can no longer be in fellowship with them until he changes his ways and confesses his sins and repents from that. Again, he apparently had done so. Now the test is on the church as to whether or not they will respond with the right attitude. So verse 12 finishes this portion with a statement. He says, Furthermore, when I come to Troas to preach, or rather, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now, Paul is going to be talking about his time with Titus when he arrived in Macedonia. But there is a parenthesis here that begins with verse 13 and continues all the way through until chapter 7, verse 5. It is there that Paul says, when I arrived in Macedonia, and then goes on to talk about his visit with Titus. But here we have this very long parenthesis a deviation from what he was about to share with regard to his time in Macedonia. And this deviation, this parenthesis, primarily focuses on Paul's apostleship, Paul's uh, glorying in the covenant of Christ, the light of the gospel, his seeing those things that are necessary uh, as a leader in the church to lead the people properly. He's going to be discussing those things over the next several chapters. And he begins here in verse 14. But he says, again in verse 13, He had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them I departed from Macedonia. He was in Troas for a season of time. Not told how long he had left Ephesus on his way to Macedonia to take up the collection that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And he's 
in Troas now, and as he arrives there, which is, by the way, still in Asia Minor, on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, um, he finds some disciples there and begins to minister to them. And there were great opportunities for him to preach the gospel of Christ in that town or city of Troas. A door had been opened to him by the Lord. However, he was driven by this desire to go into Macedonia. And he doesn't explain here why he left Troas. Was it persecution? It might have been. It might have been that same persecution that he was experiencing in Ephesus that drove him out of Ephesus ultimately. But he took ship, went across the Aegean Sea, and apparently arrived in Philippi, hoping there to see his friend Titus. But Titus never showed up. He never showed up in Troas, as was the original plan. So he's very concerned about where Titus was, what happened to Titus, and he was concerned about the message that Titus would have brought him regarding the Corinthian church. Finally, Titus did show up in Philippians, we'll see in chapter 7, in, in Philippi rather, and he brought him good, good news. But now Paul, before we get to that, is going to again deviate from his discussion about what he heard from his meeting with his friend Titus. And he says in verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who, who is sufficient for these things? Take note of the fact in verse 14, he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. That's an interesting word, the word that he uses for triumph. It's not the normal word that you might think of for victory. It actually is a word that is used in Rome um, by the Romans for a particular triumphal entry into the city of Rome by generals that had won great victories. When a general went to war with his army and they had a substantial victory over several thousand of the enemy, they would come back with great spoil and they would take many of those that fought against them as prisoners. And they would lead those prisoners through the streets of Rome in a great procession, a victory procession, a triumph procession, led by the general. And in that procession, there would be several things that were very, very commonplace. One of them would be a group of those prisoners who would be set free. Another portion of the prisoners would be brought to the games and allowed to be killed by the animals in the Colosseum, or just simply put into prison, and some of them would be killed, executed on the spot, but they were doomed to die. There was also, in that procession, priests of all the Roman gods who carried with them censers filled with incense, and they would be wafting in the air these censers, And the fumes from the burning uh, incense would be spreading throughout 
the whole parade and it would be an aroma that they would be able to recognize. Paul is using that in a very descriptive way with regard to the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Again, he says in verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We are part of the victorious army that is common in the Roman parade. He says, And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Like high priests of the Roman gods all through that parade, we are like those priests in a sense with the aroma that comes from us that people can notice people are going to respond to and he says there are two kinds of responses here he says for we are to god the fragrance of christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing it is a fragrance to god like a sweet savory odor rising up to god's nostrils in in that sense it is very pleasing to god we are a fragrance in every place that we go we have a fragrance that is noticed, if you will. Um, I want to be careful with the idea of making a physical connection here. You know, we, we use deodorant, and if we don't use deodorant, people notice body odor. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that kind of is implied in this picture. People notice the fragrance. In this case, it's a spiritual fragrance, obviously. And he says, for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance, but also for those who are perishing. The armies that lost the war, being dragged behind, that are destined to die, they are perishing. Paul is using that illustration for a purpose here. And he says in verse 16, to, to, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. The prisoners that are going to die, our aroma is a reminder to them of who we are and what they are not partaking of. That is something that the world hates. Christianity has an aroma. And if we are true Christians, the world will hate us because Jesus said, they have hated me. And because they hate me, they will hate you also. So that's an aroma that is very unpleasant to those who are perishing because they want nothing to do with that. They want to avoid that. They want to eliminate Christianity and they are so filled with hatred that the aroma that we're emitting as God's people is a stench to their nostrils. But to those who are alive, he says to the other, the aroma of life leading to life, those who are born again, the aroma of the brotherhood of Christianity is a beautiful thing and it rises up and we are in the midst of a very aromatic, wonderful uh, setting that is pleasing to us, hated by those who are unbelievers, but for us it is a most wonderful thing. Again, picture that Roman parade. Those who are going to be spared that aroma meant life. That aroma meant freedom. To those who were going to be killed, it was an aroma that reminded them of their destiny, death. But that question that Paul asks at the end of verse 16 is telling also. He says again, 
the question, and who is sufficient for these things? The implication in the way that he asked the question is, the answer should be no one. And that is exactly true. None of us are sufficient for these things. Now, in a few verses, we're going to see that there is a solution to that. But what Paul is saying is, even he, the apostle, the great apostle that God had called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, thought of himself as one who did not have a sufficiency in his ability to do the work that God had called him to do. I'm grateful for that, because I feel it's very, very important for any church leader to recognize that none of us are really sufficient for the task before us. It is hard. It is difficult to be a church leader. Um, I've done this for now over 21 years. I've had many blessings, and I have to tell you that those blessings have been wonderful blessings that I can look back at and recognize how God has truly been with me throughout these many years. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for the body of Christ that God has brought to us here in Safe Harbor Church. I'm grateful for the ministry opportunity that is given to us. But I'm also heartbroken by some of the things that have taken place through the course of those 21 years. There have been some very disappointing moments, disappointing situations that have developed. And it's very hard. It's as our little friend, our seven-year-old, eight-year-old friend that came up to me and said, Pastor, it's not an easy thing to be a pastor, is it? It's hard to be a pastor. It's hard to be a church leader. It's hard to be uh, a person who takes a stand. But we must take a stand. And no, we're not sufficient. Every one of us, we are Christians. We have a responsibility to serve him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have a responsibility to do uh, his will and to obey his command, to love one another, to serve him, to keep the faith, and to tell those who come to us asking for a reason for what we believe, to be able to explain that to them in a way that will bring glory to God. We're not sufficient for these things. But if we read further, just the first few verses of chapter 3, we'll close with these last four or five verses together. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation uh, to you or letters of commendation from you? No, we don't need any of those things, Paul says. We don't need to have the commendation from others. We don't need the pats on the back. We don't need the letters of recommendation. We don't need the uh, letters of ordination, epistles of commendation, as he puts it here, either to them or to uh, other believers or letters of commendation from uh, the church. No, we don't need that. He says in verse 2, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. What they see is the church having been brought together in a fellowship that ministers to one another, that helps one another, that treats one another with respect and trust and loyalty and love. Those are the things that people on the outside can see in a church that is doing everything the way it should be done. And when we are doing those things, they, that's what I think is most important for us as believers. We're together as believers in Christ. We are a 
bounded unit of love. That is good for all of us to remember. You are our epistle. You are my epistle, written in my heart, and other people do indeed see it. Verse 3 says, Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of your heart. You know, the Old Testament law was written on stone, the Ten Commandments. They had the letter of the law. We have the Spirit of Christ living in us. It's such a great benefit that God has given to His church, and we are partakers of that great benefit. Let us never forget that. Finally, he says in verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Remember, that's what he asked in verse 16 of the previous chapter. Who is sufficient for these things? He's admitting, no, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. God supplies every need. Christ is our source of strength. He is our source of sufficiency. In every situation we face, every problem that we have to resolve, every time we have to do anything to confront a sinner, and hopefully for the purpose of restoring that sinner into fellowship, every kind of issue that needs to be dealt with, we do it in love. And we do it not because we're sufficient for the task, but because Christ is sufficient through us. When we are weak, then he is strong, Paul tells us. And that's the message that I believe Paul wanted the Corinthian church to have in this second chapter and into the first part of chapter 3. And it is a message for all of us as well tonight. So keep that in mind, my friends. You are only sufficient in Christ. And you are a child of God. And you are a sweet, savory smell unto your God and to others. But to those outside the church, the aroma may be to them an aroma of death, unless they turn to Christ. God help them all who are against God's church today. Bless the church, Lord God, today with that which you provide.